Um, have you got anything sexy on your walls, Thomas? Now you've got a new bed. Uh, maybe you need some, um, you know, some kind of material to really, like, kind of set the mood in your bedroom, eh? Uh, maybe. I, I'm busy decorating the sitting room at the moment, as you can, as I turn my laptop, you can see the massive Polish poster of Roman Holiday on the wall. I mean, what, in the, in the era of uh, TikToks, uh, you know, NFTs, uh, what are, what are people pinning on their wall? You can't pin an NFT on your wall, can you? That's I my mean, main problem with them. You could probably like print it out and pin it on the wall. That's a, like, a, is it fungible if you like print it out <laughs> physically? I think if you print out an NFT, um, it ceases to be to be funged, mm. or you are fung you are funging it. Also, most importantly, right here, I have the OG hand-painted logo by Joe Painter for this show. Yeah, but that's not sexy, is it? I mean, there's there's a naked arse in that painting right there. <laughs> there's a naked there's a naked arse on this call. <laughs> for anyone uh, listening, Matt has his nipples out. They are surprisingly oblong. Um, yeah, I've I've, I've cut the holes in my t-shirt specifically to um. You're you're going old school like old school tattoo convention like cutting a hole yeah. in yeah, yeah, yeah. free so the free the free the tattoo free the free the nipple yeah I to be honest <laughs> nipple nipple tattoos are something that I personally wouldn't get myself I don't I think I'm a bit too sensitive to get my nipples tattooed what, mor I, like morally yeah no 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 just physically <laughs> like I I I have almost run out of like a lot of space on my arms so I'm putting stuff on my legs and. I'm figuring out what I'm going to like get on my chest and stomach, but then run out of space in your arms, so you're putting stuff on your nipples. Yeah, yeah. Put it, put it on your nipples. <laughs> this is the new show slogan. Put it on your nipples. This is this is escalated quickly. I was trying <laughs> to segue us, you know, professionally and cleanly into the topic of today's episode, Thomas. But you've you've taken us down a much darker and more um sordid route. Sort as always. <laughs> so you're very welcome to Beneath Skin. If you're hearing this, you're a patron. Um, if we have the nipples, if we have unlo unlocked it at some stage, um, this is a show about the history of everything, told through the history of tattoos. Um, I am Thomas O'Mahony. I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined by my esteemed co-host, Doctor Matt Lauder. Hello. Um, Nip nipples out and ready to talk about pinups. <laughs> so what what we're doing today is. We were talking recently about, you know, the importance of a lot of art that has influenced tattooing. And what we have decided to do is we're going to do a series of episodes about different types of art, different artists that have heavily influenced tattooing. And I think we kind of went with the most obvious one with this episode, which is pinups. Yeah. And also because I think, you know, uh, there's this general... Thing that we go on about all the time um about how tattooing kind of emerges and relates to and reproduces and connects to the visual cultures around it and i think you know pinups is a really good example of that because it's one of those um you know iconic kind of you know things that became a bit of a staple bit of a vernacular for tattooing um in the sort of certainly around the second world war although a bit earlier we'll talk about that in this episode um but also of course like Although it's very associated with tattooing, it's not just 
something you find in tattooing. It comes out of print culture, as we'll talk about, and then finds itself um, uh, adapted and appropriated and changed, um, painted onto the nose cones of airplanes and onto jackets and um, all kinds of things. And so I think the pinup, you know, is one of those things that connects uh, tattooing to these broader visual culture conversations. Um, and yeah, I think its history is sort of interesting. Um, so, go on. I think when we're talking about pinups, like, it's kind of the perfect encapsulation of, like, the cycle of artistic culture outside of, like, say, print or, like, drawn or painted mediums being translated into that and then being translated out and translated back in and vice versa exactly. cycles. Like, pinups, as we know it, kind of the visual language of them or- originates in, you know, golden era Hollywood, early burlesque in the late 19th century. You have, you know, the kind of flapper culture that evolved in the 1920s in kind of right. golden age of cinema. And, like, you can kind of directly draw a line between a lot of early pinup art to the early days of cinema. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I think, like, it's probably worth trying to determine what we're talking about when we say pinups, because actually, um, of course, like, painting of women, let's talk Let's talk about sort of, you know, straight heteronormative pinups for the most part to start with. Like, that idea of, you know, the, the classical nude and then the kind of neoclassical nude, which is kind of, you know, presents in a 19th century art, this particular kind of fantasized female body that gets to be naked because it's not, you know, they're often kind of allegorical figures like of, um, you know, justice or uh, some kind of national allegory, or they get to be, um, you know, goddesses from Egyptian mythology, Venus, um, for example, Botticelli's Venus is, is you know, a very famous example of that. I, they're not quite pinups, but the the instinct is sort of the same in some senses. It's a way of, you know, presenting a certain kind of female body, presenting a certain kind of female body for, in many cases, a presumed male gaze. Um, the idea that you know men are the kind of straight men are the kind of consumers of this kind of imagery, um, and that's something which art historians uh, have written about, you know, extensively. Something goes back to. The, cl- the classical age yeah um, and it's uh it's kind of that idea of conveying br- like grander ideas through like the physicality and the sensuality of the naked body yeah so the so the, the kind of highbrow version of that you know is that the, the 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 allegorical female body in um historical art is is something that gets to be not not pornography or not even erotic really mm. it gets you know although of course it is and it was and that becomes <laughs> a bit of a kind of sop you know no like, this isn't this isn't pornography this is grand um painting don't um, let Matt near uh, the roman statues he'll get too excited <laughs> and of and of course like all of the um all of the conversations then or, or sorry all of the sort of tropes uh, which then become codified in pinups, the way that women's bodies are drawn specifically. And we'll talk about some of those specifics uh, later on. The, the poses they're using, the kind of implied relationship with the viewer, their relationship to kind of things like domesticity and sexuality and, um, you know, their relationship between their 
brains and their bodies, all of these things, all of these tropes, they are encoded in a long, you know, hundreds of years, centuries long kind of set of culturally contingent ideas about how the female body is drawn. And like, again, we, we're not going to go into the kind of you know deep, com- complex and many layered uh, decades of feminist theorizing about the history of, of the nude in art. We can talk about that. But I think as we get into pinups per se, um, it's worth bearing all that in mind that these have a kind of history that um, underpin them. You know, the, the, like like all images, the, the pinup images we're talking about exist as a product of um, a certain kind of cultural chauvinism that's been produced over over several centuries in the Western imagination. And also, right, like um, you talk about cinema and we'll talk about that as well. Of course, this all of these art forms which intersect with each other, they then produce and change and reinforce each other in mutually interesting ways. Um, you know, once the once the the, the, the Hollywood starlet moves onto the photograph and on then into the illustration and then onto the nose code and the plane, of course then that then moves back into Hollywood as that particular kind of body, that particular kind of femininity gets idealized. Um and then you have the versions of it that are subversive and are complex. So yeah, all of that is to say when we talk about pinups, we're, we're, we're sort of, in some senses, arbitrarily drawing a little bit of a line. Um, but I wonder if you knew, to find our starting point maybe, when the word pinup uh, first enters kind of general usage in English hmm. in America. I don't know the specific, but if I was to guess, I'm going to say 1936. Oh, you're really close. That's good. <laughs> That's very good. You've obviously done your research. Um, so the the, the, the OED basically cites um, uh, the year as 1941. Okay. Um, I'm drawing a lot here on on the PhD thesis of um, um, a scholar called Elena Lipsos, who I met uh, many, many years ago, did a talk actually when I used to run a talk series up in Camden, um, who wrote a PhD on uh, on the histories of pinups and kind of interestingly subversive take on them actually. Um, so I, I'm, I'm referring a lot to her, to her PhD thesis. Um, so she she basically sort of says, yeah, um, in 1941, we get the first, you know, that's the earliest that the OED cite it. And they cite um, July 7th issue of life magazine that year um, with uh, a, a woman called Dorothy Lamour as the quote, U S army's number one pinup. So th- there you go. That's exactly what you're talking about. Film star turned pinup. And 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 what is a pinup, right? Why why are they called pinups, Tom? If I was to guess, <clears throat> it's because it is an image that can be pinned up on a wall anywhere. That's right. So okay. So these images basically um particularly during World War 2, although again not not originarily, but this is sort of where the kind of concept really takes hold. Um, you could cut out or pull out a page from a magazine. Um, remember those things, kids. And uh, and in your in your bunk, in your uh, mess hall, in your um, in your uh, in your kind of uh, carry case, your trunk, your steamer trunk. You could. With a little drawing pin, with a tack, with a pin, you could pin these girls up. And they got to be kind of, you know, basically kind of 
fantasy material, erotic material, um, for for these men who were uh, who were away from home, right? So very very quickly, magazines, um, and of course, like this period, the nineteen thirties and forties coincides with really the rise of popular publishing. It's making uh, mass production much cheaper. Color printing, in particular, is something that's really um, uh, comes into its its own in the 1930s and 40s. Begin to actually start explicitly printing what get called centerfolds, so big pictures across this double page spread in the middle of a magazine that you could pull out, take the staples out, pull out, and pin up and make a little poster. Um, and those like those pages basically are the um are where we get the term from right very very straightforwardly um the most important i suppose of these <coughs> um and the most influential of these and, and the, the home to kind of most of the the most interesting one the most interesting and famous artists and we're going to talk about three artists today in particular um george petty um, Alberto Vargas and uh, Gil Elvgren, three um, American, or actually in the case of Vargas, Peruvian American illustrators. Um, it was like getting their stuff published in um, magazines, which really, really, you know, cemented them in the American popular imagination. And in the case of Petty and then subsequently Vargas, that magazine was Esquire magazine. Um, do you know much about Esquire magazine? I don't, but I am excited for you to tell me more. Yeah, so so Esquire magazine, I think, is still going actually, um, and it was a kind of I don't know what's the best way to explain. It's sort of like you know, kind of a sort of general men's magazine without without many of the connotations that I guess that term has taken on mm-hmm. post the nineteen nineties. Although, of course, that nineteen nineties you know lad mag culture has a lot owing to that. You know, retrograde era of the thing. It's not nothing zoo. It's well, it's sort of it is the pre- precursor to that, but it's not Playboy. I guess is the point. Mm-hmm. Um, like as we'll talk about and we'll come to when Playboy was first published in 1954, it really put an end initially to this kind of magazine, a sort of gentler era. But um, yeah, Esquire is this magazine which um, published sort of you know fiction it published uh little bits of news it, it published kind of lifestyle stuff i guess we'd call it today um and yeah it published these these pinups um and so the first probably the first kind of iconic pinup artist is this guy called uh, george petty and he'd been I mean, he, his his stuff was so. I mean, if, if you want to Google image search his work, Tom, and uh, while I'm talking, like, let's have a look at it because he he was like, um, yeah, absolutely the kind of you know originator or kind of you know, delineator of this style. So much so that his style, the way that he painted girls, became known as like the petty girl. Mm-hmm. Um, have you got any of those up? Yeah, have yeah, I, I have them so, up. And- it's so what really, do you what do you what do you make of them? I mean, talk to me particularly about how they're drawn. Anything that stands out, like very. Hmm, let me gather my thoughts on it. Like presents a very kind of sensual, but still a little bit being a little bit coy about it. Like they're all for the most part fully clothed, although they have long legs, short torsos. 
you know, they're curvy, they have wide hips, large breasts, almost predominantly white. Um, they're like paired with like large muscular men. You can very much see very quickly how, you know, the Western ideal of the male and female body kind of is represented through this. Yeah, and most specifically, the kind of thing that gets known or gets kind of defined as the petty girl is they have small heads mm-hmm. and long and long legs. Mm-hmm. Very, very exaggeratedly long legs and slightly exaggeratedly tiny, uh, tiny heads, right? So they get <laughs> to be... They're sort of... Um, they're these disproportionate... Uh, <coughs> These disproportionate kind of fantasy women. Um, like, P- Petty had uh, worked as um, an illustrator. His father was a photographer, um, and so he got, he got kind of drawing copies of his dad's photos. And um, he was drawing, he was also uh, using an airbrush, and an airbrush becomes quite a kind of standard tool. One of the reasons that these uh, classic mid-century American pinups looks like they do is because they were they were airbrushed largely. Um he was born in like 1894 and um so he he went and studied in Paris in the run-up to World War One, which was a, a you know a sort of serious place for artistic study at the time actually. Um and if you if you look at like some of the work that was popular in late 19th century Paris, the salon paintings, um, artists like William Bougereau or Delacroix, uh, these French artists who were kind of doing this neoclassical stuff with lots of these kind of things we were talking about, these nymphs, you can see some of the influences um, that would become uh, uh, you know, the, the pin-up style. Um, Petit came back uh, because of the uh, outbreak of World War I um, and then worked as a kind of... Um, commercial artist right and again was painting magazine covers and also was painting like what get uh you know what get called calendar girls again a kind of before we had the word pinup uh, many of these artists pity petty and vargas and elfgren would become famous for their calendars so again you've got this you know something you need to pin on the wall functionally to show you the dates and a little bit of eye candy a little bit of uh, a little bit of titillation uh, while you're there, and it, you know it's worth noting with all, across all of the artists, although they they do have some stylistic differentiation among how they you know actually create their art, is that like none of it is for the most part very overtly sexual. It's kind of teasing and a little bit coy in a way that you would imagine how to be you know a little bit titillating in the 1940s. You'd have to be. That's right, and of course you can't. You know, there's there's lots of kind of obscenity laws. There's this thing called the Comstock Act in the United States, starting in about 1913. There's obscenity laws. There's just moral. You know, there's a kind of moral attitude, particularly at the time, which 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 keeps things a bit kind of coy uh, at the surface, at least. Um, but of course, that's pushing against. For example, in the aftermath of World War One, this um, increased sense of freedom for for young women. Um, uh, particularly because so many men had died during World War One, um, and so there was a kind of sexual, yeah, the sexual economy had changed. Um, there was also this kind of changing in in fashion and clothing, right? So um, uh, Elena talks actually about the um, 
introduction of like satin bras and the advertising of bras to women, which require kind of illustration of women in underwear. <laughs> um, Famously act- shown in a Mad Men in a great episode. Yeah. So um, uh, th- th- there's this quote here from in this episode from uh, um, another academic called Codgel. Quote, advertisers tried to convince American women their bodies should be streamlined. Instead of flaunting the bony stick figure of the flapper, women were urged to gain 10 pounds and round those deco angles into smooth curves accentuated by bras that shaped breasts like torpedoes. Or if she happened to gain 20 pounds, she could bring her girlish form back into line with a corset hid beneath a dress, cut on the bias, seamlessly sealed by a streamlined zipper. And so, like, actually, this, ab- this of course, then requires advertising, and that advertising requires, because it's much, you're not having photography and advertising very much these days, it's, it's, it's illustration. So this requires illustration, illustration of uh, women in, in bras, right? So- and it, it- it's also really interesting how, you know, the conceptualization of, well, how do we represent these things, but also like, how do we conceive them in words? Like you mentioned, like streamlined, you know, the the curves, it has this kind of like strange hint of post-World War II militarism as well, because most of the men who are going to be working in these advertising offices were at war just, you know... Had been or would see me exactly, and this mm-hmm. is and this is exactly what happens with with um, with Petty at Esquire, and I guess why Esquire becomes this you know complete kind of wellspring for this culture because yeah, like 1939 um, Gatefold basically has this Petty girl pinup, and that is like recognised as it, when we're talking about pinups in as this thing, this seems to be like one of the first. You know, important ones and he would go on to um he'd go on to basically produce centerfolds for 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 about you know about a decade also then got you know because this became popular of course right because this worked and because it was so consumed during world war Two, petty was then commissioned to do adverts movie posters um and again of course you know uh, uh that then feeds the feeds the machine um, and also worth noting as well that, like, I, I as we mentioned Playboy earlier on, the difference between, like, Playboy and this was that, like, Playboy wasn't wrapped in the veil of consumerism. That, like, oh, you can get your titillation, but it's a advertisement for boot polish or, like, a new frying pan. Whereas, like, Playboy was kind of straight for the throat. This is about sex. Yeah, and, and and the petty girl instead, right? Again, as Lipsos points out, like was used to sell cigarettes, bathing suits, sockings, underwear, Janssen swimsuits. Um, like uh, he painted the uh, poster advertisement for Siegfried Follies film. Um, uh, he he did the ornamental figure for General Motors for their Nash brand in the nineteen fifties, and it's taking yeah, taking like. It's interesting that Siegfried Follies thing because again, taking that flapper girl, but but making her a bit sexier, a bit more buxom, a bit more American, less French, less kind of snaps. So this also, yeah, this also gets kind of you know built into um, uh, kind of patriotism too, mm-hmm. right? Um, and like I, like you're about to say, like <laughs> I, I I find it kind of hard to uh, focus my thoughts right now because my head is exploding with other things that we can talk <laughs> about through this. You know, it is. It touches on the conceptualization of 
the American woman and the, the ideal American, you know, is a good diet, it's well fed, you know, you have strong curves to birth a family, to feed them, to still be attractive to your husband, but also you're still within the confines of, well, you're not obese, but you're not too skinny. Yeah, exactly. And she gets she gets to be this, well, as you said, kind of product in a way. I mean, um, Lipsos' thesis is interesting. Um, a lot of, obviously, cultural theorists have, have, have written about this practice as something that's quite regressive. And I think, you know, in, we, we can't uh, 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 understate that it is, this was a kind of commodification of the female body, largely for the male audience. Although Lipsos sort of talks in her thesis with some nuance here about how you know the particularly some of the models and particularly the the, the, the film stars who became um for example models for uh, uh some of petty's most famous drawings so people like marilyn monroe um like yeah well betty page later on for sure like uh greta garbo Catherine hepburn marlena dietrich they're Lipsos argues, and others, other academic feminist historians of this stuff have, have argued that there was some sense of the kind of control. Like, these these women understood what they were doing and had a had a sense of the, of how the com- commodification and kind of ironization of their bodies um, could work for their careers. You know, um, so like again, actually, as, as Lipsos says, like this is intended for a male viewer but actually um there's a kind of exaggerated femininity of this style which also is interestingly progressive for the period it's talking a, a lot about the, the the sort of sexual agency of these women um mm. as as depicted i mean as, as a particular kind of fantasy um yeah, yeah so it's it's uh, it's, it's complicated but but I, I i i think it would it would behove us not to be too overdetermined about the pol- oh, yeah. politics of this you know um so yeah so from from um from petty uh petty writes for uh, or draws for um uh, esquire for a while um uh, and then he basically has a falling out with them um uh, and he is replaced by the next artist I want to talk about, this guy called Alberto uh, Vargas. Um, again, I, I don't know if you want to, again, Google image search Vargas's images. Yeah, and tell me how you think they differ from um, from Petty's. So just straight off the bat, just on an artistic level, they're much more kind of sketchy. It's a little bit more loose in terms of like, you know, shading, defined, defined lines. They're much more, I would say, kind of posed in a way. Like, they're more active in terms of, like, they're posing with objects or just their bodies, but different from Petty in that they're a little bit slimmer. The heads are still small and the legs are long. Um, But it seems like his are kind of a bit more overtly sexual as well. I think that's right. So I think like Vargas, you know, is this is this Peruvian, uh, as I said, um, American son of a Peruvian photographer. Um, again, it's interesting that both these guys were were sons of photographers. Um, he'd moved to the US in 1916, and again from France. Um, 
uh, and began working for um, film studios and also for for the Ziegfeld Follies, the Broadway kind of you know review Moulin Rouge style review on Broadway. So when you talk about posedness, I think that's also true. Like a, a lot of his work was basically posed. His early work in the thirties was and twenties even is posed photography or based on post photography that was going to be used for posters and going to be used for specific advertising. Um, it's, you know, uh, and as you said, it's, it's, a, it's a bit, it's a bit harder edged, right? Like it mm. feels to me. Um, there's something a, a bit, bit less. <laughs> I, I think the difference is like between Fargus and Petty is that like the women, like Petty's girls, they seem a little bit more kind of, juvenile they have a bit more of a cherubic face they're like quite often like big beaming smiles whereas like the vargas women are like they're kind of a little bit tiny bit more stern they're not like big beaming smiles their faces are kind of a little bit more angular as well yeah and they're and they're a little bit more um femme fatale right like they feel a bit more dangerous. This is a quote from another, um, actually, this woman Maria Buzek, who has written a book about pinups, um, several books actually about pinups. She says, "quote The Varga girl and and Vargas, as his name, his drawings confusingly get called Varga without the S. The Varga girl. In fact, he has a later on in his career, he has a sort of trademark dispute with Esquire about who owns that phrase. But he's called he's called um, uh, Alberto Vargas." His drawings get called the Varga Girls. So like the petty girl, his is the Varga Girl. Quote, uh, the Varga Girl represented and helped popularise a remarkably self-aware and aggressive female sexuality that had been in previous generations been viewed as the domain of a very particular woman, the demi-mondaire, the suffragist, the film star, but without a real woman's fear of character defamation. So... So where Petty's girls get to be this kind of all-American, like real-life, you know, girl-next-door kind of thing, Vargas's pinups are are film stars, right? They're women. Who, they're women who don't. They're women who don't care what you say about them. I guess maybe yeah. that's the way to put it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and Vargas becomes once he takes over from Petty, like becomes instantly like super 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 popular um i think as well just one thing to point out as well and for anyone who's maybe like looking at the side by sides on their browser right now i think a big difference that strikes me is that like the george petty illustrations they always seem to be like looking over a shoulder or from like underneath the brim of a hat it's never it's always kind of like a sideways glance whereas like Alberto yeah. Vargas is like they're looking directly at you, like head oh, yeah. straight towards you. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and like even the ones that are like there's a, there's one. Um, I'll send you the link. Like this is from the Christmas uh, Esquire catalog from 1943. Like even when they're like flying through the air, <laughs> or uh, like they are directly, or she is this woman directly looking at the at the viewer. Um, so. What I think is really hilarious about Varga, um, so during the war, right, paper shortages, um, and so Esquire, Esquire convinced the war production board, uh, the kind of American, like you know, war supply rationing body, um, that they should be allowed more paper 
quota because their their product was good for morale. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, uh, in fact, this is this is from the work of a guy called Arnold Gingrich, again quoted by Lipsos. Um, The girl drawings, which had only been incidental to the cartoons. Um, so Esquire also had kind of funny pages and cartoons as one of these pinups, but the girl drawings, the pinups, um, now began to be featured simply as pinups and greatly augmented in size. What had been full page drawings now became double page spreads and even larger with fold outs. There was a petty girl that was close to life size with five folds, making it fold out like a Japanese kakamono wall painting. Um, so they basically got to say like the fact that men were pinning these on their on their bunks was like was good for morale (laughs) right yeah um which i really like and you can see with this like what happens and this is true it happens with petty stuff too is um soldier uh, well particularly particularly kind of airmen um begin painting copies of varga girls petty girls um uh, and 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 works by other artists lesser artists on the nose cones of their fighter planes right mm-hmm. so presumably you've seen that film memphis bell no um it was a uh, like a hey listen i've only <laughs> seen i only watched romeo and juliet the <laughs> uh baz Luhrmann movie the other day for the first time so oh, well, well i mean memphis bell was this kind of like you know romantic drama about this particular bomber this uh, b17f um bomber flying fortress um this huge like heavy bomber uh dropping bombs um over europe and uh famously it had on its nose cone this painting of um of of a of a of a, of a woman um and and that woman uh was basically well there was one on each side actually um and yeah it was basically based on a george petty pinup drawing um so a 1941 pinup uh, from Esquire, this guy called Tony Starser, who was like the kind of group artist in the Airborne crew, uh, painted this nose cone um, woman on the f- nose of this plane. And like it became you know, one of the most famous planes in the American war effort, um, completely, completely kind of iconic. Um, and of course, like the all of the stuff you mentioned earlier on about these analogies between sleekness and... Uh, 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 for example, become become part of the language of these nose cone art. People have been like, the nose cone art apparently begins in World War One um, with Italians drawing like Ferrari like like horses on the on the noses of their planes. But um, you know, by the time of World War Two, like it's this kind of done thing that you're gonna you're gonna give your planes names. Nick, affectionate nicknames um you know like 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 boats uh, for example had had for, for centuries like female names and then um you were going to kind of paint them with nose art and, and the nose art became a source of pride it became a source of like superstition you know like um we don't want we don't want this this image to get damaged or we we, we want this image to be uh talismanic for us and yeah, it becomes a bit of a kind of trend, and you can find again like loads and loads of amazing photographs of uh, of, of, of fighter fighter planes and bombers throughout the war with these um, with these nose cone pinup girls painted on them, right? 
Um, we, we also find, it, sort of in the same way, we find them painted on the back of jackets, so le- leather jackets in particular. Um, and of course, they also f- find themselves into tattoo designs. So, um, you know, we've talked about in previous episodes, like, again, uh, 19th century tattooers were copying salon these French salon paintings. Um, but again, like... If we look, if you're if you're Cap Coleman, for example, in um, in North Virginia Naval Base, if you're uh, if you're Sailor Jerry in Hawaii, um, you're uh, you're going to have soldiers bring in their favorite pinups. They're going to be bringing in copies of Esquire magazine and the other magazines. They're going to bring in their calendars. Mm-hmm. Um, you likely uh, probably have these magazines in the shop as well. That's right, exactly. You have these in the shop yourself, and then you're and you're drawing them, you're adapting them, um, you're copying them, and actually, you know, they they become they become the kind of yeah staple designs. But both, both uh, I, um, I mean, again, this has been going on, you know, it, with with the work of people like Owen Jensen, like right back into the 1920s, but. Again, of course, as these images became popular, as they became the most trendy possible thing, as they were ways of being risque and erotic and sexy and, you know, like engaging in fantasy, but in a way that was kind of linked in with all this narrative about patriotism and home and and protecting the nation state and protecting the uh, the, the, the your, your gal back home, or imagining the kind of girl that you would meet when you got home as a brave war hero, like all of this kind of stuff. Um, of course, these sexy bodies became the the best possible thing, you know. Um, yeah, I'm I'm sort of interested in this as well, like because this this move, I think, from the kind of petty style to the Vargas style illustrates like. Night, early 20th century America gets much more comfortable with like with sex and sexuality, right? <laughs> yeah, and then um, obviously you kind of then have the natural progression to Gil Elvgren. Yeah, so Elvgren as well. I think Elvgren is like um, the the third. I think of the great uh, the, the great three. Um, he um, again. What do you make of his his drawings compared to the other mm. two? So it's funny, like his stuff is, it's much more illustrative and much more kind of like, like quote unquote artistic. There's much more like thought put into the composition and the overall picture. Whereas like the previous two, it's mostly just a woman with maybe one or two other compositional elements. Whereas like Gil, it's like, you know, there's cars, there's guns, there's like backgrounds there's barbecues there's a lot more um a lot more kind of work put into creating an actual like whole picture and it makes sense that he was kind of the natural progression from the previous two if you know Fargus was creating the stern starlet picture and like petty was the kind of innocent cherubic kind of you know tantalizing Gil is kind of the full-throated consumerism. That's exactly right. Yeah, like he literally draws adverts for Coca-Cola, right? Mm. Um, and his is this post-war evolution because Vargas actually, so Esquire like really doesn't quite go out of business, but it loses a ton of readers in 1954 when Playboy starts up uh, because people can see sexy photography 
And read the articles. And read the <laughs> and read the articles. Um, but Hugh Hefner actually does end up um, hiring Vargas uh, for the latter part of his career. So so Vargas does paint for Playboy um, uh, in the fifties. But yeah, so but Elfgren, so Elfgren is like the retranchement, I suppose. Right, like after the war, when these, as you said, these sort of more subversive, more edgy, more obviously eroticized images um, are taken away from that kind of hyper-masculine context of the of the war and we're back in the suburban post-war american home and there's this whole moral majority movement to to sort of retrench a kind of pre-war kind of idea of you know pre-war domesticity in the in the american life elfgren is like yeah the version of that so he's 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 publishing his illustrations in places like good housekeeping magazine right or um or the Saturday Evening Post where Norman Rockwell famously uh, uh published um he was yeah doing these adverts for uh for Coca-Cola he he did those famous uh, 1950s um Santa Clauses actually mm-hmm. another another pinup there <laughs> sexy santa um save that for when we do an episode about Tom of Finland <laughs> um but yeah, like Elfrin is is threading a kind of interesting, um, you know, almost more socially acceptable. That's not quite the right word, but he, he's 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 this kind of more conservative version of the same thing. Um, like Elfrin works for this company called Brown and Bigelow. In fact, he sold all of his rights to them, so his children don't get any. Um, royalties or very many royalties because he gave away all of his rights to this company who who are a kind of still going out they're a kind of novelties company they sold um posters and and, and uh calendars and stuff but yeah so but so elfgren was yeah exactly exactly um and it, it is it commercial when you look at right when you look at his and art funny. it's like yeah like that but that is what i was about to say you know the two big differences is that like one it's quite clear what he's selling, but two, it's they're much more comedic because he has much more compositional elements. Like there's one here that I'm looking at called Tree for Two, where it's a lady with two dogs and the dogs are like ran in around her legs and the leads that the dogs are on have pulled up her skirt. It's obviously it's a joke, it's comedic, but you know, it it's it's clearly selling something as well. Yeah, exactly. And these these um these two academics called uh, uh Martinette and Mysel basically say that like yeah, his his pinups were pictures of real girls in real everyday situations. Sometimes they were a bit exaggerated, but they always worked. And then um when asked about his technique, Elfgren said uh he explained the distinctive touches he added to every painting. He built up the bust, lengthened the legs, pinched in the waist, gave the body warmer and more attractive curves, worked over the facial features and expression, added just a little more of a tip and tilt to the nose, made the mouth fuller, more sensuous, and the eyes a bit larger. He ended by saying he liked to create the feeling that underneath all the surface charm, there was a delicious warm of mischief behind the model's eyes. And and yeah, that's that's a much that's a much more gentle and much less exaggerated, much less frankly sexually aggressive thing to do to his source photography and his source models than than Vargas and even Petty were doing. Right, like you can see, and I think even if you think about the tattoos that are based on these various sources, even if you look now, 
the, the, the people that are doing pinup tattoos based on Elvgren are often doing quite photorealistic black and gray versions of them. Um, whereas I think if you look at a lot of the Sailor Jerry era pinups, like they're clearly based on that much more hard line, much mm. obvious, much more obviously sexy uh, kind of of stuff that Varga was Vargas was doing, right? Yeah, and as well with Elvgren, I think he kind of falls in sequence in terms of like a wider cultural phenomenon of you now you suddenly have all of these men coming home to war to their Vargas girls and their petty girls that they've been thinking about for the past however many years that they were at war. And the reality is that they've come back and life is a lot more mundane than it is on, you know, the front of Europe. And these fancies that they have been sold by Vargas and Petty aren't necessarily exactly what they've come home to. And I think (laughs) Elvin kind of is a manifestation of this kind of post-war desire of like something that's a little bit more exciting, something that's a little bit more sexy, but also the consumption of like, you've come back, the world has changed, there's so much more for you, but what if you had a little bit more? Well, that's funny you should say that, because that actually segues exactly into what I wanted to talk about next, right? Which is also the women who are trying to live up to this particular Elvgren created visual landscape. And like, again, Lipsos talks a lot about this. Um... By talking about false, like breast pads, like padded bras, <laughs> right? Like um, firmly in the air of the conical bra. Well, yeah, we sort of post conical bra and into this, like. So again, I'm going to quote a length from Lipsos here. Pinup imagery was almost certainly responsible for instigating the craze for breasts beneath a sweater and apparently ab- about to burst the stitches. The sale of sale of sweaters increased remarkably. And sweater girl competitions became pop- so popular there are ten thousand entrants for the title of Sweater Girl 1943. The Sik- Sikorsky aircraft plant found itself in the news for banning female workers from wearing sweaters, um, and the personal manager insisted they were worn to attract men. Um, so breasts claims Eric John Dingwall were everywhere, and brassieres became ingenious bags of gadgets for raising them, protruding them, and emphasising their existence. False ones were on sale. Cheetahs, falsies, and boob baits, the men called them boob baits. Um, <laughs> and these were modelled so carefully as to almost defy detection. In 1948, 4.5 million breast pads or falsies were sold. And by 1950, 85% of women over 15 wore bras and girdles, while corsets were being sold at an annual turnover of half a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, not, and not to bring it back to Mad Men once again. <laughs> But, like, you have Christina Hendricks' character, uh, Joan, Joan Holloway, who is, like, the embodiment of this idea, but, like, not using, like, the pads or whatever, but is, like, that is the woman that all of these artists were trying to create, and, like, small head, massive body, long legs. Yeah, and, and ironically as well, right, this is something which um, uh, Lipsus also points out, like, this is happening at a time when you can buy... Pl- you know, Playboy or the precursor early magazines to Playboy, which have photographs of naked boobs in them. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that actually the clothed breast, the clothed like female bust, becomes much more of a cultural preoccupation because now men can see photographs of naked ones. Yeah. But, uh, as look at as Lux Interior said, what's inside a girl? <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So, so that I think that's such such a good point, right? Like the 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 the, the pinup creates the fantasy, and then the fantasy creates the you know, particularly in kind of capitalism, post capitalism creates the marketplace of products that will mm-hmm. allow you as a as a young woman trying to trying to bag one of these returning GIs. Um, the, the 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 clothing and the and the makeup and everything else that's gonna allow I mean, you to become of, you know become reality and it's, it's some kind of reality. It's manufactured desire on all sides as well. Oh. That like the the men were sold the fantasy while they were gone. The women were sold. You know this is who you should be when your man comes home. They come home. Then the men are sold well what if your wife looked like this and then the women were sold you could also look like this if you buy these breast pads and girdles and blah 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 and it's just like it is and these, the, cig- and these cigarettes yeah it's the ouroboros of unfulfilled desire 100 percent. i mean I, have you seen that movie um don't worry darling the uh the the, the, the um uh, olivia wilde film with francis with florence Pugh and harry styles well, I, no spoilers, but basically it's kind of set in a visual universe that's very much based in this moment in time. And Florence Pugh's ca- character is this, or seemingly, I suppose, this sort of submissive, perfect pin-up housewife who, when her husband comes home from his work at this kind of secret military facility in his, like, 1950s car, is, like, wearing sexy stockings and girdle and is, you know, perfectly done up and also has the perfect dinner ready for him. So... This yeah, this fantasy is is complicated and self productive, and I think like yeah, it's no it's no surprise that these particular kind of images became so popular for um, for tattooing. And I think if you know, and then become I mean, talk about the cramps actually talking about Lux Interior, like then become the then become the fuel for then the ironization and the postmodernization of that. And the backlashes and the kind of versions of, of that kind of thing that we see in like Russ Meyer, Tira Satana, um, you know, even even Playboy uh, to some degree as well. Like the the, the kind of feminist or or, or proto feminist kind of reappropriations of this stuff. Like you mentioned, Betty Page is a good example. Mm. Or um, even even looking at Poison Ivy from the Cramps. Like yeah, that's exactly the, what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, the embodiment of this kind of female pinup, but with like a kind of ironic edge to it. Yeah, bikini girls with literal machine, machine guns. with literal machine guns. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think you know you see that you see that in the in the in the tattoo culture that arises from this too, right? Like we we, we talked in our Jesse Knight episode about her pinups, yeah, you know, which she's mm-hmm. drawing again around this time, like in the in the nineteen fifties and. The women she's painting like look like they will kill the viewer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it's it, all, all the artists are essentially drawing their own perfect woman as their pinup. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And 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 we can track that. And I think you know, there, there's not much good academic work on on the pinup. There have been lots of good sort of coffee table books and collections. Lots of um uh, fairly kind of basic version of this. I think Lipsos's PhD is my favorite piece of work on this. Mm-hmm. Um even, I mean, I, wor- even I have a even I have a pinup tattoo. Yeah, well I've got you know I've got some i I've got some Sailor Jerry pinups here. Um, yeah. You're my pinup tattoo, Tom. Oh, you're so sweet. I love um, you. So yeah, I mean I think maybe to finish up we should I should we should just sort of say what happened like in the 
in the seventies, or uh, and and really it is basically like porn and uh, and things like hustler and like the the mass production of photographic pornography, the the changing of laws, particularly about the distribution and, and and production in America and in and in Europe actually of sexual, I mean overtly deliberately pornographic sexual photography. Um, the pinup becomes a bit irrelevant, a bit old fashioned. Nineteen sixty seven. The Swedish Parliament ended obscenity laws there, um, which ma- which made the production, you know, of of, of sexual material in Sweden uh, for, you know, explicitly legal, and that then creates this domino effect. It creates this ability, you know, of course, if it's being imported to the United States from Sweden, of course, the American production producers want to get involved, and mm-hmm. Hefner in particular uh, gets involved in, in, in pushing Poland those laws. In Sweden. <laughs> So um, Bonnie Yeager, who is a um, sort of pin-up photographer, uh, basically is, again, cited by Lipsos here, quote, I was finding it more difficult to sell my work in the late 70s than before. Editors were calling me old-fashioned. Glamour photography was explicit, more explicit than ever. One magazine had girls clip their pubic hair short and use a tiny, powerful spotlight just in that area to draw attention to the girl's vagina. I found it distasteful to compete anymore to please this out-of-control market. Photos of women in men's magazines were no longer beautiful for me to look at. I didn't want to do that kind of photography. It was demeaning to women. The loveliness of a woman's body was gone, and in its place was a kind of cold, clinical photography that only concentrates on the sexual organs. I put away my camera, at least for figure photography. And so, yeah, like, um, there's, a, there's a postscript to that, and there's a more complicated, like, underworld. There's a queer story here that we're not going into about how um, uh, uh, artists targeting gay men uh, would were satirizing and drawing upon pinup aesthetics, but also, you know, uh, the similar aesthetics that had come out of um, pre-war photography for the, for the male gaze. There's a there's a kind of fetish version of this. There's all the kind of more explicitly explicit. Oh, versions. don't worry, we're gonna do an episode about Robert Crumb. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Crumb and, and all that is a good example. Um, you know, even things like Mad Magazine, which were sort of explicitly satirizing Esquire and the like. Um, but I think f- maybe this is a good place to end this this story there because, again, as we saw in the seventies, like with postmodernism, with what gets called in my view, wrongly, the renaissance of tattooing, we do see the fall away of this popularity of this kind of pin-up, cheesecake pin-up tattoo towards something else, right? Um, and not to say that there aren't pin-up tattoos in the 70s, but they're they're different, they're, they're more explicit a lot of the time um, because this stuff's just old-fashioned, and it's old-fashioned in tattooing by then, it's also old-fashioned in culture, right? This, this Vietnam War era uh, client base, for them, these pin-ups are the are 20 years old they're 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 their granddad stuff they're around or their dad stuff they're around from before they were born um so yeah but you know but you can see i guess to sort of put a full stop on this you can see still today if you if you google image search like you know uh, elfgren vargas petty pinup tattoos you can see artists even today still today are really finding inspiration and joy in these um, images um and yeah, and I think that that's a testament to their, you know, their kind of cultural centrality, I guess, for particularly mm-hmm. for American, you know, particularly North American culture. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think there's another conversation we'll have another time about like 
the aesthetics of this kind of art being subsumed into conservatism, but we'll do that another time. Yeah, well, I mean, of course it's the case that a lot of these men, you know, a lot of these men, as you, well, as you, we talk about a bit, as you said, like there's this idea of a particular kind of womanhood that is created or reproduced or perhaps problematized mm-hmm. uh, in these images, and and yeah, they 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 do become they do they can well they can become at least quite conservative. Mm-hmm. But with that in mind, uh, want to thank you for listening to the show, and a special thank you to our ten pound and above patrons. Uh, Morpheus Ravenna, Max C, Chris Block, Sigrun Braga, Sasquatch, Kirsten Wright, Kathleen Burkhardt, Jordan Best, Jess Goodman, our super secret patron, and Charlie Lightning. So thank you all for listening. You know where to find us. Um, if this is out on the free feed, um, you can hear episodes like this and other our free episodes early and loads of other good stuff on our patreon for as little as five quid a month matt looks like he has an announcement to make so i'll I'll let him take it no i don't have an announcement to make i want to say um uh, thank you very much for listening and my announcement is i love you all (laughs) bye bye